Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. In our last episode, we began the strength of calm with an episode that explored why calm is such an important mental resource, the physiological symptoms that form the basis for calm and their psychological impacts, and how we can get better at activating those systems through various relaxation techniques. Today's episode focuses on managing experiences of anxiety and the underlying cause of those symptoms, fear. Sometimes fear is obvious, such as feeling nervous or panicked, but much of the time, fear operates behind the scenes. For example, fear is at work when a person stays within a small comfort zone, procrastinates to avoid a challenge, feels emotionally inhibited, or avoids speaking up and standing out. Specifically, we're going to be focusing on a particular kind of fear, paper tiger paranoia. Uh, Dr. Rick Hansen is here today to help us fight against those tigers, so (laughs) if you don't mind, uh, could you explain where the phrase paper tiger paranoia comes from, and what the kind of basis of the concept is? Sure. Well, it comes from the idea that in the wild, as it were, uh, our ancestors and our non-human ancestors before them could make two kinds of mistakes. Mistake number one is thinking that there's a tiger in the bushes about to get you, but there really isn't a tiger there. All right. Mistake number two is thinking that the coast is clear. Everything's fine, but actually there really is a tiger in the bushes about to pounce. These are the two mistakes. What are the consequences of the first mistake? Eh, needless anxiety. What are the consequences of the second mistake? No more mistakes forever. So we are designed by the honing of evolution uh, that's really, really focused on raw survival and passing on genes that pass on genes, we are designed to make the first mistake hundreds of times over in order to avoid making the second mistake even once. Therefore, in effect, we are adaptively paranoid of paper tigers. This is useful back in the Serengeti Plains, useful back in Jurassic Park. Sometimes today, this predilection toward anxiety and uneasiness and sort of anticipatory paranoia is useful, maybe in a combat zone or growing up in what feels like a combat zone. But for most people, most of the time, paper tiger paranoia leads to lots of unnecessary suffering, lots of unnecessary stressful wear and tear on the body, and lots of unnecessary conflicts with other people. So it's essentially a kind of mental bias. You're exactly right, Forrest. It's a mental bias based on an appraisal Mm. of reality that's tilted negatively. Mm -hmm. And then based on that uh, cognitive bias, lots of emotions then follow and actions, which can create actually vicious cycles. Mm. Because if you think mistakenly that somebody you work with or live with or sleep with has it in for you, in other words, if they're actually an adversary or a tiger, as it were, that's going to naturally tend to make a person more defensive and more aggressive. Mm-hmm. which then flip it around, you become like a real tiger mm-hmm. for that other person who then reacts to you and then confirms your bias from the get-go mm-hmm. in a vicious sort of cycle. Yeah, so the cycles just kind of repeat themselves yeah. through time. So these days, we, as you sort of alluded to, we generally don't have to worry about the actual tiger in the bushes. So what are some examples of the paper tigers that manifest themselves today? A lot of the ways that this manifests is subtle in relationships, Mm. where we just tend to be uneasy about um, how people think about us or feel about us. Mm -hmm. And we also anticipate that if we do various things, like be a little more assertive or a little more vulnerable or a little more real or a little more needy, 
that suddenly this other person will turn into a tiger mm-hmm. when actually they wouldn't necessarily do that. Yeah. So very often the the threats we believe that we're surrounded by are relatively mild ones. They're not like actual saber-toothed tigers, but they are really consequential nonetheless. And then sometimes people are afraid of more consequential tigers that are just not so realistic, afraid mm-hmm. of uh, the plane dropping out of the sky mm-hmm. or, or the bridge breaking beneath their feet. Very high consequences, but very low likelihood. Yeah, or accidents on the freeway mm-hmm. or health issues that uh, are really unlikely. Uh, it's really appropriate. One of the most, as you and I talk about, and to me, one of the things we're great at is dealing with real threats. Mm-hmm. Action binds anxiety. It's really important to, of course, address real issues. But part of the problem there as well is that when people are flooded by these distracting, illusory threats, paper tigers, it's harder to zero in on actual threats, especially if they're more like long-term threats, say in a personal relationship, a gradual cooling off of warm-heartedness and passion in a long-term relationship, or subtle long-term threats that are real, like the accumulating wear and tear on your body of being stressed or having poor health habits. Or you could scale it up to the level of the planet, the long-term impact of dumping millions of tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every day through human Mm -hmm. activity. So uh, our paranoia about paper tigers actually can get in the way of uh, seeing real tigers clearly. So I don't think that I necessarily need to convince anyone that this kind of fear is is a bad thing. Mm Mm-hmm. It sort of makes sense that it's an inherently unpleasant experience to be afraid of or worried about or have any kind of sense of underlying anxiety around things that people don't need to have. At the same time, you're describing what I would sort of call hidden costs of paper tiger paranoia, right? You've, I think, named at least two right off the bat, the first one being that the paper tiger paranoia can kind of get in the way Mm -hmm. of our accurate appraisal of real threats. Mm. And then secondarily creating cycles in relationships where Mm. our fear of the other causes the other to fear us to a certain extent. Are there any other kinds of hidden costs to this sort of fear? One thing is that it sucks us into anxious preoccupations. It's Mm. interesting that there's research that when people are in modern lives today, randomly pinged and asked, is your mind wandering right now? Mm. Or are you focusing on something you really want to focus on? Roughly half the time, the average person has a mind that's wandering half the time. And the more that their mind is wandering, on average, the more it tends to be tilted toward negative preoccupations, a kind of example of the negativity bias at work. So one thing that I've seen happen for people is that they overestimate threats and then, as a result, tend to ruminate about Mm. them, including social threats. Mm -hmm. What did they really think about me? Did they, how did, did they, are they, bearing a grudge because of this silly little thing I said, when in fact the other person has forgotten it. Frankly, you're not important enough to them for them to (laughs) brood about this little silly thing you said inadvertently in the middle of a meeting at work or something like that. And if people watch their mind stream, here's the thing, Mm -hmm. watch your own mind and watch what you are preoccupied with. Mm. And then ask yourself if embedded in that preoccupation is some kind of overestimate rationally, objectively, an overestimate of an actual threat. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not. Maybe you really are thinking about something that's seriously threatening and you're trying to figure out what to do about it. Great. But much of the time, and I would include myself in this, we tend to 
uh, be, be uneasy about or sort of have it, we chew away at it in the back of our mind uh, related to fears that are very, very unlikely. And even if they happened, we could deal with them. And even if they happened and we didn't deal with them that well, we just wouldn't feel that bad, actually. They wouldn't be that consequential in most cases. I know that for me personally, one of the pieces of material that's had the largest impact on my own life has been when I learned about various forms of kind of risk analysis or probabilistic outcomes and things like that. I'm a pretty analytical person, so that's kind of how I think about it. But there's particularly a book I'd just like to recommend real quick, which is called Fooled by Randomness. Mm. I believe that the name of the author is Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. I may be saying that incorrectly. And it's a great book on a lot of ways because it really kind of explains how math can trick us and how the human brain is actually really, really bad at figuring out how likely certain outcomes Mm. are and on making kind of reasonable decisions based on the likelihood of those outcomes. Mm. So you're describing kind of two different scenarios, right, in terms of a paper tiger. Yeah. The first scenario is something is really, really, really dangerous, but it's not actually that likely. And we think that it's more likely than it is. For instance, you're a child and you think there's a monster under your bed. Yeah. You know, having an actual monster under your bed would probably be pretty dangerous, but the (laughs) likelihood of it is pretty low. Another kind of paper tiger would be one where the consequences of it are not necessarily that large, but we massively exaggerate the likelihood of it. Yeah. You know, so I think that for both of those cases, getting a little bit more perspective on the true likelihood of outcomes becomes really, really important. And that sort of helps us start to manage those paper tigers, right? Justifying those things in the mind. Totally. And I think it's helpful for people to realize how insidious fear is. Mm. Because if, for example, you worry about a bad event and it doesn't happen, that does not disprove the possibility that it, well, might happen tomorrow. And then you even have people who say, like, to talk about uh, your mom, my wife, we'll be going down the freeway and you know you've been in the car and she'll be very, very paranoid about lots and lots of paper tigers nearby. And then at the end of a car trip, let's say, we'll turn to her and say, see, you had nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. And she'll say, well, first of all, my worry kept those trucks away. And second, just because... They didn't get us this time. Doesn't mean they can't get you next time. Yeah, I think it speaks to one of the things that we talk about in the book, which is the feeling that many people have where it's in the moment that they're not afraid that the bad thing will kind of leap out and get them. That's the other side of it. Yeah, yeah. so by by dropping the shields, so to speak, we suddenly become susceptible to the real consequences of these phantom worries. Totally true. So carrying that thought through a little bit, What are some of the things that people can do in order to reduce their fear of those paper tigers? Well, the first thing we can do is recognize sources of overestimates of threats, sources of needless anxiety, besides the evolutionary hardwired negativity bias tendencies we have. Mm -hmm. A first major source is from childhood. Mm -hmm. I think about childhood experiences as as like creating a sort of preamp inside us Mm. I go back to the old days of stereos with vacuum tubes, I know, back in the Stone (laughs) Age, in which uh, a signal comes in. So let's suppose that something is happening in our life that is a little anxiety-provoking, it's a little threatening, there's something a little risky about it, 
But on the zero to 10 threat scale, it's a one or a two. But then it hits that preamp from childhood experiences in which we were really scared of things, or maybe we were really mistreated in some ways, or for other reasons, we grew sensitized to anything that might seem threatening. And then that signal that's actually a one or threat that's actually a one, say, hits the preamp and feels like a six or a seven or an eight. So one of the things for people to be mindful of is the ways that previous life experiences, especially in childhood, can jack up your estimates of the likelihood of a bad event and the horribleness if it ever occurred. A second major source is, frankly, other people. Because we are so vulnerable to fear, we are therefore very vulnerable to manipulations related to fear. For example, in relationships with friends and especially with authority figures, and definitely relationships with adversaries, you can be aware of the ways in which they are turning up the dial in the threatometer, the threatometer, uh, in ways that bullies do, essentially, to make people feel scared, especially more scared than they need to be, particularly when they think about, well, what would I actually do if this bully in my life did this thing they're threatening? How would I respond? How would I deal with it? How could I stand up to it? How could I enlist allies? When you do that kind of thing, you start to realize that a lot of the subtle forms of threateningness or uh, pressure coming at us from other people or implicit consequences, if we don't kowtow to what other people want, they're just not that true. Third major source is the culture that's jacking us up. Mm. When people are mm-hmm. revved up with chronic sympathetic nervous system activation with related hormone releases like cortisol, they become more vulnerable to tipping into the red zone and tipping into fight or flight responses, which are based on a, a response to threat, most fundamentally. So simply being revved up primes us for paper tiger paranoia, mm-hmm. even if we're not really revved up about anything threatening. Mm-hmm. We might even be revved up enthusiastically, chasing one shiny object after another, as you say, in our career. And yet, it's really easy, once you're revved up, to just switch the direction just a little bit, and suddenly you're feeling anxious and angry and threatened. Next major source is to have a culture in which we're bombarded with information and news or media of various kinds about terrible things happening to other people. Mm-hmm. They're not actually happening to us. They're not even happening in our zip code or our time zone, mm-hmm. but they're happening elsewhere. But to the brain, it doesn't really filter that very well. It just goes, oh, I better be scared because I'm watching the news and always it's, there's something horrible. There's some serial killer running around. There's some burglary that occurred. There's some house that burned down. There's some natural disaster. Tornadoes are coming through. Oh, just our immersion in news these days, tends to prime people to paper tiger paranoia. And then the last major source, um, just to note it in passing, uh, is that throughout history, leaders of various kinds at all scales have tended to play on fear by, Mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, inventing or, or exaggerating the threats coming to a particular group or a particular community or a particular country from some other source. And it's helpful to appreciate the ways in which uh, that's a very powerful trump card to play in any kind of group environment, especially in a political environment. It's been played throughout history. And certainly in my lifetime, there have been many, many examples of it being played today. 
and by being aware of the ways in which often, frankly, you're not really living under threat level orange. That's a way for you to filter things and put in correction factors that helps you see threats accurately. So really what you're talking about there to kind of sum it up and put it under one big bullet point kind of is seeing threats clearly. So to give like a little checklist for that, you want to be able to appraise how big is a potential threat? How damaging would it be if it happened? How likely is that threat? And then as kind of a corollary to the first point, how bad would it actually be if the thing happened to you? What would the ripples be through your life if it happened? How long would the discomfort last for? And so on. And I think that what many people find is that they have an enormous fear of an experience. Mm. I'm certainly familiar with this around uh, various kinds of physical threat, whether that being getting nervous myself in a car or rock climbing or whatever it might be, where you have this big fear of falling. Yeah. And then you fall once and the rope catches you and you're like, oh, wait, I'm fine. Right. And I think that that's kind of a good analogy for a lot of what we're talking about mm. here, where we think that we're on the cliff face with no rope. Yeah. And we actually have, in general, a pretty good suspension system around us of various great. kinds. Yeah. Of course, it's important to acknowledge that there are real fears and there are real threats that really do exist in all of this. None of this is to paper over the real legitimately scary stuff or to minimize situations where you actually do need to call for help in a meaningful way. But inside of that, it is important to acknowledge that we do have a lot of fears that will never come to pass. Yeah. And learning how to manage those things in the mind is absolutely a very important skill. You know, as a piece of that for us, just thinking here, I think there's something kind of sacred that happens inside people. Definitely happened inside me because I was scared of a lot of things, especially when I was younger. There's something that basically says, I'm tired of being afraid. Mm. I'm willing to be afraid about what I ought to really be afraid about. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I'm tired of being afraid when I don't need to be afraid. It's important to realize, uh, as we've talked about, that a person can appraise threats without feeling anxious. Mm. A person can be very serious and very strong and even intense about dealing with things without feeling any sense of apprehensiveness or uneasiness at the time. Mm. So we don't need anxiety to recognize threats or to cope with them adequately. There's a place for a little bit of anxiety giving us a sort of signal that there really might be something going on in a relationship or a physical setting or even with our own body. And it's useful to listen to that what's called in psychology, signal anxiety, because it might carry some important information. But most of the time, the anxiety that people experience in my observation of others, and definitely in my inner knowing of myself, most of the time, the anxiety people experience is like a car alarm blapping away. Mm. It's just noise. Mm -hmm. It's not really offering a signal. So in response to that, there's this sort of muscular moxie thing that happens where you just feel, hey, I'm tired of this. I'm mm -hmm. tired of it. And especially if you feel like you're around people who are trying to scare you for their own purposes, whatever those might be. And there's something inside that sort of stands up and says, no, I'm tired of carrying this around. I don't want to carry this around. I don't want to let them manipulate me. I've had it. And based on that, the very first thing I'm going to do is start seeing my world in a clear way, as if I'm looking at it from the top of some mountain with a vast, clear view. The air might be thin up there, but the view is terrific. 
and to bring that kind of spirit to your own life, especially if you're someone who, uh, based on the details of your life or more structural reasons, such as you belong to a group that historically has been pushed around, especially if you have any history of feeling small or overwhelmed or pushed around or dominated, or if you've been on the receiving end of aggressiveness, I think it's especially important to claim this spirit for yourself that you're going to stand up to unnecessary fear. I think that's really great. And it also touches on something that we've discussed really pretty extensively throughout this podcast and various episodes, which is agency. And the idea of taking maximum reasonable responsibility for what you can control, including that sense of, I'm going to do my best to not be fearful about these things anymore. That's a way that we can exercise agency. We can take that first step down that kind of path. But then the other side of the coin of agency is understanding the things that we can't control and being willing to release them. You at a certain level, cannot control it if the truck veers into your lane and you get hit. Mm -hmm. That is the nature of the beast. And it's reasonable to have a level of caution about that truck veering into Mm -hmm. your lane. It's reasonable to pay attention to your surroundings and be ready to move if you see the truck start to veer into your lane. But every once in a while in life, you are the nail and there is a hammer coming Mm -hmm. down. And it kind of is what it is. So the choice at that point becomes not about do we get hit by the hammer or not? Because guess what? We get hit by the hammer. That's how the story ends. Wait, wait. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. It's not like, hold on. Wait, no. That's that's the way it goes sometimes. You get hit by the hammer. And the question is, like, how can we still live our best life, right? How can we learn to do our best to not fear that hammer as it's coming down, to not suffer more than we need to? in terms of the first and second dart, which Mm. we've talked about again in a previous episode, not adding fear suffering to that pain, not adding, oh, I could have done more suffering to that pain. Feel the pain, live with the pain, but sometimes that's the most you can do. And I think that it's, you know, it's not necessarily an inspirational note to end on, (laughs) but I do think that it's a reasonable acknowledgement that sometimes bad things happen. And the question is, how do we do as well as we can with those bad things? Yeah, to, to, I, I totally agree with you, Forrest. I think it's a great point. And what I notice uh, is that when people are dealing with real tigers, mm. and they know that they really are, they're mm-hmm. mobilized, they're energetic, they're engaged, they have a work ethic, they're staying with it, they're disciplined, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They really are doing what they can with the real tigers. That actually helps people be more at peace mm. with the tigers they just can't control. Mm-hmm. And it, it also tends to draw people away from needless preoccupations with threats that are way, way overestimated. Yeah, I think that's really true. I've certainly found in my own life that when I felt really mobilized around taking action, making changes, taking the big swing, whatever it might be, whether it's in my personal life or my professional life or kind of more generally with how I view the world, my anxiety really has gone down. And I say that as somebody who you know, as a person that kind of has like a underlying sense of anxiety through yeah. life, I would definitely say that's a characteristic of mine. So I found that personally useful. Hopefully the people listening find that useful. So I think that's a great place to bring this episode to a close. Uh, today we were talking about paper tiger paranoia. Paper tiger paranoia is the experience we have where we're afraid of things that 
just aren't that likely or just aren't that scary in real life terms. It's an evolutionary response to the fear of the imaginary tiger in the bushes. We are designed by evolution to hear a rustle in the bush and think it's a tiger all the time, Mm -hmm. even when it's only a tiger one time in a thousand. Mm -hmm. Because the 999 times that we jumped away inadvertently or unnecessarily are totally okay in evolution's eyes for the one time that the jump actually saved us from the tiger. But Mm -hmm. these days, the tigers in general just aren't as scary. The risk is no longer do we get eaten by a tiger, it's do we have an uncomfortable interpersonal experience. But we're still adaptive. We still have that Stone Age brain that still fears those tigers in the bushes. We talked about some of the ways that those paper tigers manifest in life through interpersonal relationships, through our physical surroundings, and then on the most macro level, through societal functions and through politics and economics and these big forces that are really benefited by filling us with that underlying sense of anxiety and distress. Then finally, we closed with some thoughts on how we can start to manage the paper tigers in our life. This includes appraising them clearly, understanding the resources that we can bring to bear on those paper tigers, and then finally, giving it up to peace, understanding what we can and can't control, and trying to develop a sense of real like inner peace around the things that we just don't have that much of an influence over. Fantastic summary. Well, thank you. So I hope that you enjoyed the episode today on Paper Tiger Paranoia. If you are enjoying the podcast as a whole, you would really appreciate it if you would rate the podcast and subscribe through the platform of your choice. I believe that most of the people who listen to this do so on iTunes, but we're on a couple of other places as well, if that happens to be easier for you. When you do that, it really does make it much easier for people to find the podcast. So next week, we'll be coming back with an episode dedicated to feeling safer and managing other kinds of fear in our lives. Until then, thanks for listening.